The OMTG Taps is brought to you by StarCityGames.com. Scars of Mirrodin is coming soon, and StarCityGames.com is your source for boxes, cases, fat packs, intro packs, complete sets, and singles. Head on over to StarCityGames.com and pre-order Scars of Mirrodin today. Hi, this is Ken Nagel. This is Patrick Chapin. Hi, this is Evan Irwin. And you're listening to Yo MTG Taps. Everybody and welcome to episode number thirty-eight of YoMTG Taps. This is Joey Pasco, Big Head Comatose. Yeah, apparently I'm Joey the Mind Sculptor now. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know it. Um, why don't you elaborate? Because everybody's wondering how you're doing. Oh, um, I'm doing good. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I think Basically, I had too much caffeine. Yeah. So why don't you tell me? Because I wasn't awake. Why don't you tell me what the paramedics said was wrong with me? Like, I don't even know. Like, Well, basically, last week, we're playing a game. It was my turn. I was taking forever. Maybe not forever, but I was taking my time because I was, I was about to lose. Because he had, like, Ulamog and Primeval Titan on the board, and I had Wall of Omens. And I was like, all right, what am I going to do? Joe starts making crazy noises. I look up. He falls off his chair. I'm like, are you serious? And then since he didn't answer me, I called 911. Um... Basically, you kind of just went into, like, this... After, like, shaking and making some noises, you kind of fell asleep. Um, but I knew you were breathing. That was, like, the big thing to me. I was like, okay, he's not, like, having trouble breathing. And then the paramedics showed up, and uh, they asked you to get up, and you were like, do I have to? And, <laughs> and um, you just were just totally being, like, very jolly, like, very you know, jovial, and but like joking around, like when you're in a great mood, you're just like, I'm just going to joke around with people. They're like, you know, do you know who that is? And you're like, Dr. Dre. And uh, they said, how old are you? And you're like, 55. Um, <laughs> but it was like you knew, like you had this grin on your face, like I know I'm lying, <laughs> but you had no idea. And that. you know what's funny? I don't remember saying any of that. I was right. still out. It was like you were like coming, like talking in your sleep was almost how I would describe it, but um... Anyway, you eventually answered who the president was and what year it was and, and your address and stuff, and you seemed like, you know, you were fine. And since then, you've been fine except your shoulder. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, just to revisit that for everybody who was wondering the, the situation, but uh, now let's get into some magic talk. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple topics to cover. Part of what I want to cover is the things that I got to talk about last week that you didn't. Um, just a little bit. I mean, we can touch on it. And I think we want to go over, uh, we, we talked a little bit about the Mox Opal with John Medina, but I don't think we went too much in depth with it. Um, so we can talk about that a little bit. I've been thinking a lot more about Venser, and you just mentioned something to me about Elspeth, so we can revisit those as well. Um, first off, let's talk about some of the event coverage from this past weekend. And, um, and even last weekend, we had Pro Tour Amsterdam. So, this past weekend, just yesterday, um, and according to the mothership, uh, Pro Tour Portland <laughs> was yesterday, although uh, it's actually Grand Prix Portland, but like I said, the mothership is always right. So, um, Martin Yuza wins Pro Tour Portland. Nobody knew it was a Pro Tour until afterwards. Yeah, he was probably surprised to see that check. Yeah. The event was limited. It was M11 limited. 
Um, so, Which is why we won't be talking about right, it we're, we're that much. No reason to go over deck lists exactly, but if you guys are interested in seeing some of that coverage, uh, we'll link that in the show notes. Um, the top eight was pretty interesting. Uh, John Locks, Josh Lane, Martin Yuza, Paulo Vitor de Rosa, Nicholas Lynn, Thomas Keane, David Ochoa, and Philip Bao uh, were the top eight. So several of those names you should recognize. So that was Grand Prix Portland. That was this past weekend. Um, last weekend was Pro Tour Amsterdam, and though I did talk a bit about it last week, what did you think about that? Like, what do you think about the new extended and what you've seen? Um, well, unfortunately, my internet has been down, so I haven't really. I didn't really get a chance to follow it as I would have liked. Um, I love the fact that Doran was showing up as much as it has because mm-hmm. those are the cards I've been picking up for new extended. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting. Um, when they announced New Extended, the first thing people jumped on was fairies. And there were no fairies in the top eight. I'm sure there were plenty in the tournament. I'm pretty sure there were some in like the top 16 or 32. Right, right. I think there were two. But, but yeah, I mean, no it's fairies. interesting that it wasn't as dominant as everybody expected. The other interesting thing that I failed to mention last week is uh, it's kind of accepted knowledge that when a format is new, one of the best decks to play is White Weenie. Uh, it kind of just... Escaped me to actually realize, like, oh, and look what won, White Weenie. And it was, there were two White Weenie decks in the top eight, maybe three. I know it was Kai and, uh, and obviously Paul Reitzel, um, playing White Weenie in the top eight. So that kind of leads me to the idea that I wonder how good White Weenie really is. Is it because the format was so wide open that White Weenie was good, as it has been historically, like in new formats? So I wonder if White Weenie is actually as good as it looked putting two in the top eight. Just something to think about if you're considering White Weenie like for new extended. That's another thing, though. White Weenie might not be a bad idea for new extended because, again, it will be a new format come October. Right. Sure does look fun. Yeah. White Weenie always looks wow, fun. Wow, I'm surprised there's no Windbrisk Heights with four Spectral Processions in the deck. No Windbrisk. No Winbrisk, no a Johnny Goldman. Those seem like good cards, but I guess when you have such quality cards as like four Figure of Destiny, four Knight of the White Orchid, Ranger of Eos, Steplinks, and Student of Warfare, like you just don't have room. It's a solid deck, and there's a lot of good White Weenie cards. I feel like Wizards has been giving us really good cards for White Weenie, but it's been spread out, so it hasn't been as big a force in standard as some would like. Like Evan Irwin, for example. Big White Weenie <laughs> fan, right? I mean, he—he, he, uh, I'm sure he was super excited to see this. And I think, um, I think this deck is just showing you, like you just said, where's Windbrush Kite? Where's a Johnny Goldmane? Like these seem like good cards for White Weenie, but they ha- they get cut. Like that's, it's almost like an overload of good cards for White Weenie. Well, well, here here's one thing I just want to say about New Extended. Okay. Um, don't discount fairies. You know what I mean? Just oh, because absolutely. it didn't show up. Because, you know, again, a rotation's about to happen, and Fairies loses nothing in the rotation. Yeah, so very good point. So Fairies could be positioned to be even stronger, you know, after the rotation. Right, exactly. I think, they said this in the, uh, the podcast coverage, Fairies is almost a good choice uh, for the format for those who didn't get a chance to do any testing. Or just decided not to do any testing. Because it's it's definitely a good deck. It really hasn't changed much from when it was in standard. There's really not going to be a whole lot of additions to the deck uh, to make it change as far as like the play style. So 
Um, if you played Fairies in Standard, you pretty much have an idea of how to play it in New Extended. So, uh, just some things, again, to consider for the upcoming Extended season. Speaking of Kai Buda, though, I mean, who we mentioned in being in the top eight of Pro Tour Amsterdam, he, uh, he has an article on the free side of Star City Games uh, today. Wow. Yeah, Monday, September 13th. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, so it's basically a tournament report, and that, I mean that's fantastic. He's one of the best players in the history of Magic. I mean, he's top three, if not top two, if not possibly the best. Although I think that title goes to John Finkel. Also, uh, one correction I wanted to make from last week: the Heartbreaker Hall of Fame situation. Yes. Uh, it turns out that the math that they did, like the whatever it was that they. They did, when they calculated the votes, uh, it was off just slightly. It was just enough to get Bram Snepvangers into the Hall of Fame. So, yeah. So congratulations to Bram Snepvangers for making it into the Hall of Fame, and um, pretty awesome. I'm, I'm glad to hear that there were more than three, and especially that Bram was one of them, being that he is, one, deserving, and two, like to miss out on such a narrow margin to be one vote off... So uh, moving on to a bit of news that is a little old. It's about uh, I think it broke the weekend of U.S. Nationals, so it's a couple weeks old. But we haven't gotten a chance to talk about it because this is actually like our real first episode back. Yeah. Uh, So false start last week. Yeah. uh, Basically, uh, we have event decks. These grab and go event decks were announced by Wizards um, back on August twenty third. just to give a rundown of what they're supposed to be, uh, it seems like they're marketed towards people who play F and M and want to uh, want to be playing like tournament viable decks, uh, strong decks, but uh, you know that are competitive right out of the box. To quote the the announcement, event decks are designed to be strong, capable, standard legal decks. If not being able to find the right deck is keeping you or someone you know home on Friday nights or any other night your Magic community gathers, this may be just the deck you're looking for. Each event deck is 60 cards plus a 15-card sideboard ready for all of your dueling needs. Also included is a spin-down life counter and a strategy guide to help pilot your deck to victory. Best of all, they'll be available on February 25th, 2011, just in time for Mirrodin Besiege Game Day taking place the very next day. Um... So, I guess there's a whole lot of things to, to kind of talk about here. Like, what could these possibly be? Because they've already got pre-constructed decks if you want to play a deck at, right out of the box. So, where are they getting these decks? Are these going to be designed by, you know, R&D or internally? Well, naturally. Right, well, what I mean, well obviously the cards are designed by R&D. I no, just I mean, saying, like, the, the, like the, probably the same people that build the, uh, the so, pre-constructs. So, but they could very well be taken from, uh, you know, recent tournament results. But that's the thing. Like, I guess they need... to Right, though. exactly, because they need to plan ahead to put which cards are in there. So, these are these going to be... I mean, it seems safe to assume that these are going to be decks that are what Wizards assumes are going to be tournament viable decks. It's kind right. of kind of interesting. You know, we've never seen that kind of thing before because usually, you know, Wizards releases the cards and just lets the players play and lets the you know the player base decide what 
what decks are going to be good. Basically, designing the the decks, and it's pretty well accepted that uh, some decks just totally escaped Wizards, uh, escaped their radar. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, they weren't expected even on the Wizards side. So, taking that into account, Wizards designs a deck for for this you know grab and go event deck product and it's completely outclassed by a deck that they didn't expect which essentially makes the marketing completely wrong like this deck isn't viable at all <laughs> you know what i mean i, I mean I, I don't know i'm just that's that's a couple things and the the other big question just jumping off the page at me right now is the 15 card sideboard like how do you design a sideboard for a format like I mean, they really—they're just going to have to assume what decks are good. Utility cards. I mean, right. like, I'm, of course you can. I'm just saying it's kind of funny to me to think like it's almost—they're just assuming what the format's going to be to design these decks and to decide what goes in the sideboard. So it's just going to be like kind of generic staple cards. I think it'll be fine, but it's interesting sure, to me. Sure. Here's here's what I think this is going to be. I think that these are going to be slightly more consistent. Um, like intro decks, you know what yeah. I mean? Like I feel like they're gonna be like, like yeah, they might be like, maybe they'll be a little more powerful. Maybe they'll have some more powerful cards in them. But like I feel like, like you said, it's really how can you make that assumption that something's going to be tournament viable from the get go? Mm-hmm. Like especially like since they have to design these things so far ahead. And since there are decks that escape R&D, you know what I mean? Like, right. So, like, they're either going to just be, like, future future league decks <laughs> that, like, you know, they were like, oh, man, wouldn't it be cool if we put this deck out? Well, that's what we're going to. You know what I mean? Like, right. how powerful do the cards get in these decks? I mean, right. like, do they go mythic rare? Do they go, like, you know... Red deck wins times three cough? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like that, that's, the, that's the question where... I think a lot of people are wondering. I mean, I'm definitely wondering what they're going to do because here's here's what I was thinking. All right, who's the market? It's people who want to play F and M or those type of casual events. That's specifically what it says. Uh, are some of your friends getting left behind when you head to Friday Night Magic? Are they stuck at the kitchen table while you're out meeting new friends, winning cool foil prize cards, and having truckloads of fun? So they they specifically mention F and M and kitchen table. So. The way I see it, like, there's three ways they can go. Good decks, you know, quote, good decks, filled with mostly commons and uncommons and some rares, maybe some mythic rares, basically a step up from a pre-con, like you mentioned, but with a lot of four-ofs and synergy, but not actually decks that are present in, like, the top tier of the metagame. Right. You know what I mean? Like, these, I think Red Deck Wins is a, a classic archetype. They could build Red Deck Wins and a white weenie deck, and things like that that are um, kind of classic archetypes that work well, but I think the difference will be more four ofs, because I think there are no intro packs that have more than, like, two copies of a card. Right. Um, or intro decks, uh, besides basic lands, right. obviously. Um, so th- that's one direction, and that that's supported by the fact that they're uh, pretty much assuredly designed ahead of time. You know, like, they can't just be like, all right, this deck just won last weekend, print them up. You know, they have to have these done ahead of time. So the second way, uh, the second option is, I mean, actual good decks with four Jace the Mind Sculptors and three Elspeth Tyrell and 
whatever, you know, like, here's Blue White Control, Bane Slayer Angel, Jace, which is a little bit scary, but uh, but that's a po- it's an option, it's a possibility, right? I mean... It's not scary. Well, it, it's, I'll get to that, I'll get there. Um, or, and this is another possible thing that many people have thought of, including me, um, something, the same as the sec- second option, so Bane Slayers, Jaces, etc., but with different card backs that are maybe only legal in low uh, low REL events. Because they specifically mention FNM, what if these cards maybe have different card backs, maybe different borders, and they just, whatever it is, these are not legal in high-level events. Hmm. You know what I mean? Because the bottom line is they have to give people incentive to buy packs. If, I, if all I play is, I mean, if I want to play in a Grand Prix, and I can just go buy my four Jace the Mind Sculptor Bane Slayer deck, uh, you know, Elspeth for 20 bucks or whatever. How, how, I mean, we don't know the price point on these, but I'm sure they're not going to be like, here's the event decks, two hundred and forty nine ninety nine. Like, what? You know, nobody's going to buy that, um, especially considering their, their target market. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but if, if I can just go get the Mythics I want and they're legal in Grand Prix and stuff, I mean, why would I buy a, a pack ever? Again, if these are tournament viable decks, and that's what I want to do, I want to play a tournament viable deck. Why would I ever buy a pack? I'll just buy the event decks. There's no incentive for me to buy a pack, or, or, or uh, you know, buy singles from Star City Games or something. Like, oh, well, I'll just, I don't need to buy it. It's in the event deck. You know, why, why not spend twenty bucks to get my Jaces and Bane Slayers and things? There's just no. So unless they have some sort of uh, indication on the card that they're not legal in high-level events, um, then I, I don't think they can do something like this because it takes the market for packs. It just cuts it out. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, at least in theory, at least the way I see it, I could be wrong, but sure. that, that's the way it looks like well, to me. Um, well, I, okay, first of all, I don't know. You, you, I think you mentioned something about, like, it being a scary proposition for them to start printing mythics in these decks I think that I think that it's fine like if they want to print Jace the Mind Sculptor and drop Jace's price to 20 bucks like you know the same people who are complaining about the price of Mythics most of those people are the people who also paid 80 bucks per Jace Mm -hmm. and who don't want to do that anymore you know what I mean like so it's like well you gotta you know they gotta do something somewhere you know what I mean I mean it's scary to the portion of the market that that uh, make money off these cards. It's scary to Star City Games. You right. know, like, here's our Jaces that we've been paying 60 bucks for or something, and you're going to just, you know, put them in $20 event decks, four of them each in there, and now you just screwed people, you know, biz, big businesses. You know, I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about people, you know, the businesses that sell cards. That, and, and the other thing... They made. They've already set precedent for caring about the secondary market with the whole reserved list ordeal. Right. Like Given you can't be like we care about the reserved list, but we don't care about the reserved list. Like it's one thing to reprint Jace in M11 packs or something. M12 obviously would be the next opportunity for that kind of thing. But it's one thing to put them in packs again, and again people have to buy packs. Yes, like Baneslayer. Look at Baneslayer. Like it's one thing they reprinted a fifty dollar card in another set. And now it's a $30 card. That's one thing. 
But it's another thing to go, here's three or four Jaces in a $20, $30 product. Right, but it's, I mean, not to say that they would. You know what no, I mean? No, I know, but I'm trying to, we're using the extreme example. Sure, sure, sure. Wizards' business is to sell product. Right. That's what they're selling. Mm-hmm. So to basically, like, make a new product that obsoletes another product, it doesn't seem like it's gaining them anything, right? Because they're just... They're, the whole business has been built on buying packs, selling packs. You know, like, are they going to just build these decks for everybody and have very little incentive to buy packs? You know, it's a lot less incentive. Right. I say no incentive. I'm, I'm exaggerating. But, you know, there's they, they might release five of these event decks and a certain uh, staple card isn't in any of them, so now you need to buy packs. It might be a Mythic Rare. You need to buy it. And that's what I think... I think that's more likely, but... Uh, I just also think it's a possibility, given the express target market, that maybe these cards will only be legal in low uh, REL events. That certainly would be an interesting way to go about it. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, I mean, I mean it, they've never really done anything like that before. Yeah. Um, but they have printed cards that aren't legal in... Right. No, they, they've, they've printed they've, unhinged. They've, they've, no, I'm saying they've printed cards that aren't legal in anything... They've printed decks with backs that aren't legal in any tournaments. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying it's unprecedented for them to print a deck with like a certain back that's only legal in a certain like format right. tournament. You know what I mean? Like Yeah. But I mean be- I think it falls into the like the unhinged unglued category in that these are legal only in unhinged unglued tournaments. You know right. what I mean? They're not legal in, you know, whatever, your regular FNM or your regular Sunday tournament or Grand Prix Portland or anything, you know? Right, right. Um, so, in a way, they have done that. These cards are only legal in tournaments that say they're legal. I mean, we've, we're used to this. This is, this is what Magic is. These cards are legal in this format. These cards aren't legal in the same format. You know, or, or whatever. This card's legal in these three formats, but not in this one. It's just very... Uh, it's something you need to be aware of if you play in tournaments. And I think if they were to... uh, I I think most professional players, like players that are playing more professional events, are pretty aware of the rules, not only of the game, but, you know, of what's legal and what's not and things. They're not, you know, showing up with squirrel tokens in their 60 cards. You know, like, that's... I mean, the only... The only uh, possible conflict... Is things like Grand Prix where they're open events, but I mean you just gotta, it's just like anything, they can't show up to Grand Prix DC and be playing fairies. You know, You're just gonna you can't be like unaware and just walk in with a deck. Like I was just playing this last, you know, just playing this in the fall. Why can't I play it now in May? Like, well, because it was legal until. September, fairies was legal last September 2009, just because you were playing it then doesn't make it legal in May 2010. I don't see that that's so far-fetched. Some sort of either alternate borders or alternate back or both, something like that. Um, So, I I can't really see any other way for them to go. Either alternate backs or, like, glorified intro decks. Um, I just don't think that they would go with just straight up, totally tournament legal everywhere, decks and include the decks that we have been seeing in standard that are, you know, $700 decks. Right. You know, to just to buy for 
20, 30 bucks. I just, I can't imagine that they would do that. Um, but we're going to see. I just wanted to, to bring it up because I thought it was an interesting thing to talk about. And like mana bases. Mana yeah, bases that's another have always thing. been notoriously crappy on, in, in any sort of intro. wizard's intro deck. You know, the mana base is like, oh, here is a Terramorphic Expanse, and then like 9 and 8. Yeah, like <laughs> pretty much. It's yeah. like, oh boy, thanks, wizards. Right. Yeah, so I mean, like, do they put like the fetch lands in there? You know what yeah. I mean? Do they put like uh, the man lands, stuff like that? It's definitely interesting. Like, it's gonna be interesting to see what they do with that. Yeah. yeah. Here's something I just totally thought of off the top of my head. Wouldn't it be neat if they did like, since everyone keeps, oh, price of mythics is too expensive. I don't understand the concept of trading. Uh, like. Wouldn't it be neat if they did like a standard format that was like a pauper esque format that was no mythics? That could be interesting. You know what I mean? Like so you so you know off the bat you're not dealing with planeswalkers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there are no planeswalkers in the format. Um, you know, there are certain other things that you know off the top of your head aren't in the format. Like Right. Like what if they did a like a standard it was like standard minus mythics. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like some sort of like pauper esque standard format. Yeah. I don't know. Like, do you think I mean, people it's... would like like that, or do you think people would be like, "Oh, like"? I, I, I mean, I assume that people still wouldn't be satisfied and be like, well, "Oh, they can't even figure out where to lower the price of mythics, so they make a format where there's no mythics." I don't know. That would I think that would lower the price of mythics right there because it lowers the demand for them. If the whole segment of the population decides I'm just going to play this format and I don't need mythics. Than that, but then it, it goes right back to the idea of their business is to sell packs, and they want people to buy packs to open mythics. So why would they be like, hmm, we're going to make a format with no mythics, so you don't need to really buy packs? You know, like it just kind of screws. You don't need to buy packs to get the rares. Yeah, but you don't need to buy that many packs. The whole thing is like, and the more mythics you wind up acquiring, the the you know the more into the other format you'll be. Possibly. I just think it lowers the market. I think sure. the thing is, like, oh, especially, like, looking at... What if they just introduced that format today? Like, poof, here we are. Um, hey, I no longer need to get Jace's or anything, but I just need, like, Conundrum Sphinx. You know, I'll just... I don't even need to open packs because everybody's got a bunch of... I can get those easily. Like, I can just trade for those. They're a dollar or two dollars or something, you know, if that. Um, whatever, you know, like, that's my blue four drop now. Um... So they don't need to buy packs because people have been buying packs anyway. So they've already got these rares are already, you know, floating around. They're just... Right. So I just think... uh, I think what that would end up doing is... While I don't think it's likely because I think Wizards would be, um, you know, kind of cutting back on their profits for no reason. Like with with no gain. Just basically appeasing people. Mm -hmm. Uh... They would, uh, it would lower the price of mythics because because it would lower the demand for mythics. But in if the, once this format's been around for a little while, the price of regular rares might increase too because people would be opening less packs. So fetch lands may be twenty dollars, man lands may be ten dollars, things like that. The regular rares would be higher, so it would kind of, a, you know, course correct and end up being. You're still spending almost the same amount for a deck because now the fetch lands are, you know. 30% more expensive or something. Everything's... All the rares went up because people aren't opening as many packs. Right. But, th- again, that, that hurts Wizards' wallet. You know, that hurts their pocketbook. That hurts their bottom line. Because 
people aren't opening as many packs, they're not getting as much money. It's a very you know easy way to look at it. So I don't know. Um, it's an interesting just, idea, though. Just a, just no, I know. Thought. You just threw it out there, but I'm just giving you my feedback. So let's move on to some uh, some select Scars of Mirrodin spoilers. Um, By we, select, we mean every single one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we were supposed to have the guys from O2 Drop with us today to discuss some of these spoilers, but um, unfortunately John had to work. We didn't know that at the time, and Dave just found out yesterday that uh, that he wasn't able to join us either. So it's just us two, which is just fine, but we're going to have those guys on at some point. What I've learned now from the past couple episodes is not to tease the next episode unless I actually have the content recorded. Because I teased, in episode 35, I teased episode 36, and that was just fine because I had the content for episode 36. But in episode 36, I said, hey, next week we'll be back to normal. And we weren't normal at all because Joe had a seizure. And um, last week I said, oh, next week we're going to have the O2 drop guys with us. Again, wrong. So <laughs> no more next time on Yo! MTG Taps unless I have the content recorded. So um, so let's uh, let's talk. No, last week I went over the, the big ones, the big three. Although now that has become a big four or maybe the big three has changed. One of the big three may have changed. But I, I go so far as to say there's a big four. One is notably slightly less expensive. Um, so we have Elspeth, Venser, and Mox Opal. The fourth one, which we're going to get to in a minute, is Koth of the Hammer, mm-hmm. the Red Planeswalker, who may be the best card in the set, at least as far as uh, Mythics go, as far as the price of Mythics go. Uh, but we're going to get to him in a minute. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Elspeth, Venser, and the Mox. Specifically, Venser and the Mox, because I've given a little more thought to both. And I want to hear your opinion more, too, because we only talked a little bit with John on the phone. So, I'll let you go ahead first. Um, out of the three, I think that I like Elspeth the best. Not I, th- I don't think I like Elspeth the best. I like Elspeth the best. I think Elspeth is single-handedly the most powerful of the three planes, I, I would say, of the three planeswalkers that have been spoiled, uh, frankly. Of all three. Of all three. Okay. I think Elspeth's really powerful. Um, I mean, yeah, her plus ability is kind of eh. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, gain some life, whatever. Um, her minus ability makes three dudes. Three dudes. <laughs> Did you watch the magic show this week? No. Because <laughs> Evan, of course, famous for his three dudes quote about spectral procession, you know, sarcastically saying how, well, he was, wasn't sarcastic, he seriously did not like spectral procession, and that ended up being the best of that cycle, because it made three dudes in a token uh, environment, uh, or what ended up being a token environment, so he goes there with Elspeth, he's like, three dudes, seriously, <laughs> it's amazing, so check out uh, the most recent the Magic Show on, uh, I guess it was Friday, September 10th, pretty yeah, good. the internet's been down for yeah. forever, so, uh, that's awesome. Um, but it's this final ability that I'm just really, really into. I mean, like, you can, you can activate the ultimate after one turn. You know what I mean? You play right. it, you play you play it her down, you maybe gain some life, mm-hmm. you know? And then, and it doesn't even kill her, right? No, you're right. It, she, she goes plus two. She starts with four loyalty, so she plus two is up to six. Right, and, and then, then it's only minus five. They have the a ultimate. turn to deal with her, um... Before you, 
can just Nevenerals disc, essentially. Destroy all other permanents except for lands and tokens. Yeah, better Nevenerals disc. Yeah. Because it destroys Planeswalkers. Right. It's amazing. Uh, to me, this card is freaking amazing. Like, Well, the, the situation you just kind of suggested, um, there's a lot of creature decks. So you play her on turn five and plus two her. If they do have creatures to attack with, they're just going to attack her, so you can't do that. And then there's haste creatures Maybe like... you're setting up stuff like Wall of Omen. Well, that's what I'm saying. You really need... I'm, I'm saying you definitely need to have something to protect her, of course. Well, of you, course you do. Right. I'm, I'm just bringing that up. Like, she's not like a... You need, she needs support, is what I mean. She's needs, like Gideon or something. Right. Well, then now you have to play her on turn six to do it. And you just kill your own Gideon. Or turn five if you have like a chalice or something. Right. So, but, but I'm saying you have to play Gideon first and then you kill your own Gideon. So Gideon's not that great of an option. Um, Venser, on the other hand, I think is interesting with her because he blinks himself out of the way and then you go off with Elspeth and then he comes back. So you end up with two Planeswalkers. That's one of the abilities of Venser that I like. Um, but no, I, I'm not really arguing with you as far as uh, how good she is. She is good. I just like I think she requires some support because, well, sure. All uh, planeswalkers require some support. Right. Well, I just mean, like, the scenario you just brought up. Because if you've got a lot of... Here, here's the thing. If you've got enough to protect her, well, plus two her, maybe plus two her again. You don't necessarily need to go off right away because you probably have some protection. Now, I'm not saying, like, it's bad. I'm saying, like, obviously, if you have, like, a Seagate Oracle and a Wall of Omens to their, like, Venge Vines or something, then, I mean they're going to swing with their Venge Vines either way, because they are gonna they can see they're going to lose them, probably. You block with your guys, they die, then you go off with Elspeth and they lose their Venge Vines. Venge Vines may be a bad example, because they can just bring it right back. Venge Vine, that's just another example of why Venge Vine is so good. And probably only getting better mm-hmm. after, because there's no Blood Ray Dolph going to be in the format. Um, but no, like, she's awesome. Like, I, I think... I like her better than Koth, but only because of my play style. If I played Mono Red, or was a big fan of playing Mono Red, which I kind of am. I like Mono Red. That's one of the decks that I've played. I am. Um, you, I know you definitely like Red Deck. Um, but Koth seems... Well, we keep referencing Koth. I, w- I don't want to get to him yet. I want to finish talking about the Mox and Elspeth and Venser. But I don't know. I feel like Koth is better than Elspeth. In the decks that he works in, in the right deck... Like, say, a deck that is maximized to work well with Elspeth versus a deck that's maximized to work well with Koth, Koth, I think, is better. She's she's a turn slower, you know, that, and that's significant. Um, but I, she's she's fantastic. I don't want to discount her. I just want... Well, I also think that... I mean, I also think Elspeth could be really good with uh, Eldrazi Monument. Yeah, that's you what know? you were mentioning before. I think that's great. Uh, she makes three dudes, and then right. they're well, all pumped, and they have flying and indestructible. Right. Well, just think about it. Like you go turn turn five Elspeth, make three guys. Turn six Eldrazi Monument, make you know, three more. Make guys. three more guys. Lose Elspeth. She's gone because you minus two'd her twice. But you've got six two two indestructibles the next turn, or five because you probably will have to sacrifice one unless you've got something else on board. But empty board, Elspeth, three dudes. Eldrazi Monument, three more dudes. Seems like an interesting play. And yeah. then you still have like mana, a, a mana up if that's even significant. But 
I, I think she's awesome. I can't wait to to play with her. But um, I feel like Venser. Venser is very polarizing. I feel like there's a lot of people who are just like, what's the big deal? And other people are like, he's ridiculous. I think he's somewhere in between. I think you need to build around him. Um, I sent Joe a deck list a couple days ago just brainstorming about the possibilities with Venser. And I built the deck around Venser, but I built it so that Venser is... Like, if somebody were to say, use Memoricide to remove Venser, um, it doesn't really do anything to my deck because Venser is just kind of like... I, I built it around him to be synergistic with him. I took Next Level Bant and combined it with, like, Blue-White Sun Titan Control and ended up with, like, a Blue-White deck that plays four Wall of Omens, four Seagate Oracle, um, Tumble Magnet, which is kind of, uh, which is a new Scars card. It's a three casting cost artifact that comes into play with three charge counters on it, and you can tap it to remove a counter and tap target artifact or creature. Um, so... Venser can blink that and reset it. Um, you can also, if for some reason somebody were to destroy it or it were to end up in a graveyard from something like Elspeth's stability or something, uh, Sun Titan brings it back. So I, I'm playing Sun Titan in there, um, which Venser can blink. So Sun Titan comes down, gets something back, then Venser blinks him, he gets something else back. Like You, you could start the, the turn with one Venser in play, with just Venser, Play a Sun Titan, end up with you know a Wall of Omens and a Seagate Oracle, which you can you know now you're drawing deeper into your deck. Um, uh, Sphinx of Lost Truths I threw in the deck. I mean these were just this is just a, a theoretical deck list. I obviously haven't played with it yet, but Sphinx of Lost Truths. There's a lot of three drops in the deck, being uh, or three or less. There's like a Journey to Nowhere in there, um, so I can play Sphinx of Lost Truths, discard some three drops or, or less, and then get them back with Sun Titan. Right. Um, I can blink the Sphinx to dig three deeper into my deck. Mm -hmm. um, it just, I built like this kind of crazy synergy thing. And like I said, Venser just is good because he wants to blink things and being able to blink these things and get so much value out of it. Now suddenly I have a handful of cards because I just blinked the Sun Titan and got back Wall of Omens and drew a card and whatever. Now I have spells and he's... Uh, you know, Venser's up, pumped up because I blinked a couple times, and uh, now I have him on his ultimate, and I have a handful of spells because of Sun Titan and Wall of Omens and, and Seagate Oracle. Um, just a lot of cantrips in the deck. Um, Preordains in the deck. That's the only cantrip that I can't retrieve with a Sun Titan. But it was just... I, I think Venser could be really strong in that. And that that takes my um, my comment from last week about how his minus ability, which is creatures are unblockable, is can almost just be ignored uh, unless it's relevant, unless you really need to to swing in at something. Um, I built the deck around his mainly his blink ability, and then the fact that just building towards that, you're just naturally going to get him to his ultimate. So, uh, but there's a Bane Slayer in there. Uh, there's Celestial Colonnades, Sphinx of Lost Truths. Um, so, and Elspeth, just one Elspeth. There's, there's just a lot of win conditions that kind of just work towards the same synergies. Hmm. Um, so I, I think that's a deck where Venser is really strong. People are men mentioning uh, blue-white allies. I haven't even like really thought much about that, but I guess just the obvious ability to blink allies is just... Yeah. That's pretty damn strong. That seems pretty freaking good. 
So, um, <laughs> I, I don't want to say he's like the nuts or anything, which some people are really, you know, all over the card, but he's not as bad as I think other people think he is. I don't think he's bad at all. Right. I'm just saying I would gladly trade a Venser for either of the other Planeswalkers in an even quote-unquote trade, right? because I feel like when the dust settles, I'll be getting value out of those trades. You know what I mean? I just right. think that the Koth and the Elspeth, the Koth has obvious implications, um, you know, in the decks where he fits, mm -hmm. uh, mostly red deck, uh, if red deck has more support cards for it. Um, and then Elspeth, I just feel, is the best. Right? The you best. like her the best. Um, just to touch on the mocks again, uh, did you have anything more to say about the mocks? Because I, I feel like you didn't say much last week. I don't don't think it's that great. Um, and I've heard different opinions on the mocks as well. I've heard Brian Kowal thinks it's nuts. Yeah. Um, Mole drifting. Lauren Lee wrote that on uh, the comments for episode thirty-seven. She said that he thinks it's nuts, so she kind of wants to agree with that. She's hearing good things about it. He's probably playtesting it. That's another thing. Like, a lot of people don't do this, but apparently a lot of pros specifically do. Cards spoiled, start playing with them. Proxy them up, throw them in a deck, play. I think that's how uh, people realized how good Jace was before, like at the point when, when World Wake was released, people had already been playing with it as a proxy. Even mm -hmm. if it's not in a viable deck, I mean, even if it's not in a deck that's going to be relevant, it's interesting to try proxying it, especially if it's a card that doesn't necessarily uh, need to be built around. Now, the Mox, though, I think it kind of, it needs some build around. I mean, you need to be playing more artifacts. But I think, uh, I don't know, I th I'm not sure. This is one I'm really not sure about. The fact that it's legendary. The legendary thing really throws me for a loop. Like, because it's like, obviously if you have a Mox, you want it on turn one. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, if you don't have three other artifacts, or two other artifacts, two art other artifacts to play with it, it does literally nothing. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. obviously there It does are... do, it does help other metalcraft, so I think that's something to sort of consider as well, but I think you're right in that, really, like, you want the Mox for its mana, like, its ability is to accelerate you, and the turn one extra mana is, uh... It's really where you want it, but it's really difficult to pull off. It's a, a very interesting uh, tension there in that you want to... It's like you want to just throw artifacts out on turn one almost for no reason other than to get a free mana. And is it going to be worth it to do that? I mean, what if you can play... What if you have an opening hand of uh, Memnite, Mox, and like a one casting cost artifact? Mm -hmm. Do you go land... Tap it, play the pithing needle. That's obviously not standard legal, but it's the, an example. Um, you know, land, tap it, pithing needle, uh, mox, memnite. Now I have a mana from my mox and tap it for something else that costs one. You know, like, right. does, did, you, did you really gain anything? Like, you just paid, played three or four cards and you turned on the mox opal, but what do you really have? Like, you, you on turn two, now you may have... So then you, you know. but then you play all those cards, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got two mana, right? And you draw Mox Opal, 
Yeah. <laughs> and you've got a dead card in your hand. Right. You know and I mean? and your, your, your hand is light and you've got a 1-1 one, one and some mana. Like some, so what do you have in your hand that's going to help you out? You've got a little, like a one one, like it's a soldier token. You know? Yeah, like it's not. I mean, it's cool, uh, and that's just an example. Like, there oh, may be way better things. Oh crap! This soldier token accidentally got shuffled into my deck. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing about the the mocks, um, people are referencing using it with Everflowing Chalice, uh, but I don't know, like. How good is it? You're gonna throw your chalice away to get the extra mana. Like the fact that this mox doesn't have inherent card disadvantage, I feel like is one of its strengths. But if you're just gonna throw away an everflowing chalice or two on turn one or something because you want to get the uh, the metalcraft threshold, it seems to me like that's just almost as bad as it's imp- like a it's worse, into five. Right, it's worse than chrome mox because. You know, you're kind of you have to imprint a card on it, and then they can just turn it off anyway. Um, or maybe it's not worse than Chrome Mox, but I don't know. It's legendary. That kind of makes it less. It just seems like kind of a bad idea. Now, the thing that people were saying uh, was, "Oh, well, you can throw the Chalice out there, and then later proliferate." But the the thing that people are missing about proliferate is it needs to have a counter on it already. Uh-huh. You can't double the counters or add a counter to something that doesn't have a counter at all. Right. It has to already have a counter on it. Um, even Ben Hayes wrote that on Twitter, saying like he can't wait to like play Chalice for zero and then use uh, Steady Progress to proliferate. And I was like, you can't actually do that. Because read proliferate uh, again. Uh, well, st- I'll read steady progress. Okay. Steady progress. I I believe I mentioned it last week. It's a blue and two common instant uh, with the ability proliferate. You choose any number of permanents and or players with counters on them. Then give each another mm-hmm. counter of a kind they already of a kind already there, and then draw a card. So it's a cantrip instant that proliferates. Now, how good would that be if you could just put a counter on anything? But the fact is, you can't play a chalice for zero and then proliferate later unless you have another way to add a counter to it. Otherwise, proliferate just doesn't work. Right. So that's important. Um, Trinket Mage is back. Trinket Mage is back. Pretty exciting. He can search up the mocks. He can search up the uh, ever-flowing chalice. He can grab Pithing Needles and Extended. Mm-hmm. He can grab uh, Mem Knights. If you really need another blocker, you're like, I'm about to die. I need two, two chump blockers, trinket mage, mem knight, free, you know, uh, free guy. I think thrumming bird is actually really good. Thrumming bird is a really interesting card. I like it. So one one flyer for a blue and one creature bird horror. Yeah, it's a scary blue bird. Um, flying, obviously. Uh, whenever thrumming bird deals combat damage to a player, proliferate. So. Uh, that that's just very interesting with any number of cards. Like, Seems pretty awesome. Planeswalkers, you know, like yeah. how how cool is it like Elspeth? Like you you play Elspeth, she's got four loyalty counters. Don't plus two her. Attack with Thrumming Bird, proliferate, she's on five, ultimate. The turn you drop her. <laughs> and I just thought of that, but I mean that's something I like you, it. You, you you lose your Elspeth. And your Thrumming Bird, but if you that's a, just a way to use her ultimate immediately. Um, if you've got multiple Thrumming Birds, you don't lose Elspeth. Uh, if you've got multiple Thrumming Birds, you can use, you know, you can get the other Planeswalkers to their ultimate pretty fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, what about Venser? Like, what is he? His minus, you can make your Thrumming Birds unblockable, and then if you have more than one, you just get those, get 
value out of it. You actually plus one them. Um, but I mean, it's any number of things can work well with proliferate. Um, I think especially the planeswalkers, but also infect. That's pretty cool too. Like if you play a deck based around infect, you can swing in with thrumming birds and just like it's almost as if they have infect themselves. Um, their one damage may be negligible if you're trying to win with infect, but right. uh, you know it just really kind of depends on what else you you've got going on in your deck that have counters on them. Um, but I do think it's relevant to play Everflowing Chalice as normal, like a turn two Chalice. Um, actually, how how about this turn turn three? You could play Chalice and then Thrumming Bird, and the next turn you attack with Thrumming Bird. Now your Chalice makes two mana. And and you can play your you can play a five drop right turn four because you got four lands or you can play a six drop because your chalice now makes two mana mm-hmm. so I mean and that's on turn four that's pretty neat acceleration right yeah speaking of infect one of the cards I'm excited about is Skitherix the Blight Dragon yeah uh, four four flying for five black black and three mythic rare legendary. Dragon skeleton. Of course, it's got to be a dragon. All right, it's the art's fantastic. Um, it's got infect. You can pay a black to give it haste until end of turn, and you can pay two black to regenerate it. So if you build a deck around infect, this seems really good. Um, Skitherix, on turn six, you can drop it, give it haste, and swing for four, four poison counters, out of nowhere. So if you've already set yourself up to give them multiple poison counters, you could kill, you know, you could kill on turn six. Just drop them, give them haste swing if they can't deal with it. If they can't uh, deal with it one turn later, you swing in for another four. Um, it's, all you need to have done is give them two other poison counters. What if you have a thrumming bird, for example, in play? You turn six, drop Skitherix, swing with both. Now, I don't know how that would trigger. I guess could, you could possibly stack the triggers to give them the poison counters and then have the proliferate resolve, possibly. I'm not sure. I'm not a judge, and I haven't given this any thought whatsoever ahead yeah. of time. But it seems like you could stack the triggers that way, where uh, they get poison counters and the proliferate... Actually, the proliferate The proliferate would happen after a- the After damage. that, right. It would yeah. trigger after the damage. So Thrumming Bird gives them another counter. So now they, they have five poison counters just from those two guys. Mm-hmm. Next turn, if the same thing happens, they're dead. If they don't deal with Thrumming Bird or, uh, or the Blight Dragon, um, so I mean, in multiple Thrumming Birds, again, it's almost as if the Thrumming Birds have infect. And if you're playing them with Planeswalkers, you're getting a lot of extra synergy there, putting counters on other things. I mean, how about Jace the Mind Sculptor? Like, I'm gonna bounce your guy, attack with Thrumming Bird, put the counter right back on him. Like, you know, he loses no counters. And I, I, I don't know how. Uh, how good that is, because you still can only use the Planeswalkers once a turn, but it could be significant in giving Planeswalkers back their counters. I think it might be more relevant in getting them to their ultimate quicker. Yeah, like Fate, Seal, Throwing Bird, I mean, like, you're yeah. already at six. Right. I mean, Right there. You know what I mean? That's pretty awesome. Yeah, you really need to, I mean, it's a very build-around-me kind of ability, proliferate and infect, but they do work really well together, too. Um, now, we kept teasing Koth. So we have Koth of the Hammer, whose name actually... The first letter of his name actually spells out Koth. 
Koth of the Hammer. Which Koth, uh, me and Joe just spent five minutes trying to figure out what the actual term for that is. We can't But remember. we can't figure it out. So if anyone knows, please tell us. We're going to get it as soon as we stop recording. So, uh, uh-huh. But it's matter. driving me nuts right now. Yeah. So he's, um, uh, Go ahead. You want to read it? Sure. Yes. He costs two red and two more. Uh, he's Planeswalker Koth. Plus, he starts with three loyalty counters. He's a mythic rare. Plus one, untap, target mountain. It becomes a 4-4 red elemental creature until end of turn. It's still a land. Minus two, add one red to your mana pool for each mountain you control. Minus five, you get an emblem with mountains you control. Have tap. This land deals one damage to target creature or player. So... Pretty awesome. It's really like it could be really disgusting. That's the thing. Now he needs mountains to work. He's decent in decks that aren't playing all basic mountains, but obviously he's not as good unless you know he he's ridiculous if all you have are mountains. If your your whole mana base is just mountains, or maybe fetch lands to fetch up mountains, right? Like arid masons and scalding tarns. Uh, I guess you'd do that if you wanted to thin out your deck, or if for some reason you really needed like. One island or one plains or something, but uh, the f- fact that like turn four, like let you you can theoretically you can play him on turn three with Everflowing Chalice or Mox Opal if you have that many artifacts, that, and that's significant too because if you're playing mono red, you can at least play artifacts still, you know, that, and supplement your strategy with artifacts. Um, you can. It's kind of ridiculous that on turn four, I mean, you could untap a mountain and attack or something, uh, untap it and use the mana for something. Like, what if you, what if you turn four, play him, untap a mountain and pass the turn? They go Vengevine attack Koth and you bolt the Vengevine. You know, now you have the mana up to bolt Vengevine to protect Koth. Now he he doesn't have any way to protect himself. Um, that is something that has been. Um, Historically, with Planeswalkers, the good ones have some way to protect themselves. Uh, Garrick makes a beast, and um, Jace uh, bounces a permanent, and you know uh, Elspeth makes soldiers. Like but all the, the one best. thing that they all have in common besides protecting themselves, they all cost four. Yes, yeah, four or less. Like so, Jace Jace Bellerin didn't protect himself either. Was clearly the best Planeswalker ever printed because it costs three. Right. No. Um, but but he was decent. He was decent. Oh, no, and the, the fact was that he and he still is. Yeah. The fact is he costs three, so he gets out there a turn earlier, then replaces himself. Right? If you if you drew a card off of him, which obviously you're drawing a card, hopefully, uh, or, you know, obviously it's better if you weren't letting your opponent draw as well. But I mean, a lot of times you could just play him, draw a card, and then if they like attack it, you just got, you know, some gain some life out of it too because you, they just attacked your Jace to kill it. Um, so and and he's decent. He wasn't ever like the most broken of planeswalkers. Garrick was the first one who seemed really significantly good. But anyway, with Koth, he only costs four, which historically is the really good planeswalker casting cost. But he doesn't protect himself, and that because Sarkin Vol uh, also costs four, not so good because he couldn't protect himself. True. Um, so that might be something to consider too. Now people are going nuts over Koth. He's pre-selling for fifty bucks as well. Him, Elspeth Venter, all the Planeswalkers, fifty bucks. Um, he could be the best, but he really requires a lot of mountains. So you're limited in your strategy if you want to make him uh, perform at the highest level. 
you know, perform perform at his on the peak. pro tour. Right. If if you want him to work on the pro tour, you have to use mountains. Um, actually, that pretty much applies. If you want him to actually be good at all, you need some amount of mountains. Right. Um, so the fact that uh, he doesn't protect himself could be relevant, but being able to untap a land and hold a bolt could could kind of offset that a little bit. That's turn four, right? Turn four, you do that. Turn five, if you drop a mountain, you've got ten mana right there with his minus two ability. That's disgusting. Uh, turn five, Kozilek. Turn five, Kargan Dragonlord, fully leveled. It does get better. I mean, it's it's a very mono red card, uh, Kargan Dragonlord. You know, it, it needs the red mana. Right. It only levels on red, and it has fire breathing, so it's a very mono red card. And Koth being spoiled just you know shows you exactly how strong mono red can be now with something like this. Now, mono red does lose a lot of its uh, a lot of its strength. Loses ball lightnings, hell's thunders, hell spark elementals. Right. So like, it needs replacements. That's the the thing. Yeah. Now Mike Flores seems to be um, thinking that maybe Koth is better in something like a big red strategy rather than like a totally balls out aggro kind of thing. Um, And you know, so so playing ever flowing chalice to get him out on turn three. And then, I mean, just the fact that... I mean, you can do any number of things with his second ability the turn after he's played. I mean, you can essentially play him for free if you played him on turn four with four mountains. You just played him, minus two him, and then drop something that costs four or whatever you want to do. Something to protect him. Yeah, exactly. Something to protect him. Um, Kargan Dragonlord, level it twice. Uh, So, I mean, seems like... uh, Unfortunately, you can't level the, the Dragon Lord up to anything like a 4-4 flyer right away, but right. at least it's something there to block if you really want to uh, protect him. But then again, now you're in a situation where he's on one counter, and you then have to use his uh, first ability to to get him up to, to be able to use any of the other, you know, the other abilities. So... Obviously, his last ability reminded me. Nobody's said this, but it reminds me of Hecatomb from Ice Age. <laughs> wow! Right? Because Hecatomb was it was a black black one enchantment. When it came into play, sacrifice three creatures. Four. Four creatures. I was going to say it was either three or four. And your mountains tap to swamps. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and your swamps tap to actually make people lose a life or I, I don't think did it do one damage I'm gonna look at it damage target creature or player I feel like it was too um yeah it deals one damage to target creature or player so Koth's ultimate is essentially Hecatomb for mountains uh which that's I mean that should be game winning if you have a lot of mountains the fact that you can just control the board from then on just kill everything they have unless it has some sort of protection from red um but I almost feel like his second ability is the strongest just plus one Either keep a mountain open or attack or whatever you want to do if you, you feel like safe in protecting him. Um, then the next turn, drop a mountain and have 10 mana to play with. So, uh, Chimeric Mass is another favorite of mine. Yeah. It costs X, it's an artifact, rare. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, it comes into play with X charge counters on it. You pay one, and until end of turn, Chimeric Mass becomes a construct artifact creature with this creature's power and toughness are equal to the number of charge counters on it. So you can have it... It's basically like... Uh, kind of reminds me of like a Mishra's Factory. It's not a land, you have to pay for it, but 
you can search it up with Trinket Mage um, and play it for however much you want. I mean, I think that's really neat. Just just being able to, like... I love things that survive Wrath of God. Coincidentally, he's right next to Venser, which survives, like, Elspeth's ability and all is dust and think Well, your own all is dust. I, I love the idea of being able to... Um, to have something like a Manland or a Chimeric Mass that you can uh, basically play Wrath or Day of Judgment or All is Dust or something and have these things survive through it. Because Venser can blink himself before you All is Dust. And Chimeric Mass, obviously, you're just like, all right, I'm going to play Day of Judgment, everything's dead, pay one, swing for whatever how, whatever size the Chimeric Mass is. Um, so I, I really like that. Um, I, I used to love the... I had the green-white Anarid Brush Hopper deck where I'd be like... Discard two cards, the, the brush hopper blinks out, Wrath of God, he blinks back in at the end of the turn. Like, I love that kind of thing, and I think, and Manlands just go right along with that, so that's why I love those, too. And Chimeric Mass goes with that, too. So, Clone Shell uh, costs five. It's an artifact creature shapeshifter. It's a 2-2. Two, two. Imprint, when it enters the battlefield, look at the top four cards of your library, exile one face down, then put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. When it's put into a graveyard from the battlefield, turn the exiled card face up. If it's a creature, put it onto the battlefield under your control. I just think that's a really neat ability. Like, I think yeah. that that's, um, I don't know how relevant it's going to be. Right. But, like... Five like, for a 2-2 two, two seems like a lot. Yeah. But, like, doing something like that with, like, an Eldrazi, <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Like, like sticking a huge dude under him... I mean, obviously, you've got to be able to set it up that way, but, like, if you're playing something like Chase, you can put something on top, you know, like, yeah. I don't know, it's, 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 it's an, again. I, I think it's neat, too, I just don't know, I don't know that it's good enough. I mean, if people are whiffing on summoning traps that go seven cards deep, it's easy to whiff here, too. Right, but the problem is with summoning traps, you got to play green. Right. Well, I mean, true. like, you know what I mean? Like, you could play, you could put this in a mono blue deck. Right. And, like, put, and... The other thing you know, is, be stacking the top of your deck with Jace. You know what I mean? Where you're like technically, you know, starting off with the first ten cards. You know what I mean? I don't know. Like, and you don't, or you mean seven? Is that, I mean, like, mean like the seven in your hand, and you brainstorm off of Jace, and then you can go four. Oh right, right, right. I see what you're saying. You know, what I mean? I'm just yeah. saying, like, you, you get this. You, you have a lot more options as to what you actually wind up putting under him, rather than just going seven. Hope to God I. Yeah. see something. You know? But, like, why not... It's like, oh, I'll tap five and put a Baneslayer on top, so when this guy goes to the graveyard, I get Baneslayer. Oh, I could have just played Baneslayer. You know, like, five mana is a lot. And also, the other problem is it's not when he leaves play, so it's not like you can blink him with Venser or something. Mm. It's when he goes to the graveyard. So, I'll condemn it. You know, something like that seems like, you know, you just, you just lose okay, the card. moving so on. It, it needs to go to the graveyard, right. and if, it, if it's exiled, not so good. Yeah, so, right. Contagion that, Engine that kind of sucks. Uh, Contagion Engine, uh, cause six. It's an artifact, it's a rare. When it enters the battlefield, put a minus one, minus one counter on each creature target player controls. Um, so it's only one-sided. And then tap four and tap, proliferate, then proliferate again. Which, interesting enough, proliferate is lowercase, um, oh, that is when it's, uh, not at the beginning of a sentence. Huh, interesting. Uh, never noticed that. Before. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So I think that is a ridiculously awesome card. It could be really neat just to, you know, get rid of, uh, 
you know, get rid of small stuff, but then the second turn you can, you basically, all your creatures are minus three, minus three. Or all, all your opponent's creatures are minus three, minus three. What I, honestly, like, I really like this card in a deck like my mono green ramp deck. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's a way, it's like one-sided mass removal, like, whereas all is dust, um, winds up occasionally, like, screwing me over, like, mm-hmm. uh, I'll drop a primeval titan, and then someone will drop something nastier that I gotta deal with, or, like, planeswalkers or something, and then I all is dust, and I get rid of some of my mana dorks and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, this just, like, takes out creatures, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I can see it being pretty decent there. The other thing is, um, being able to, if you have Garrick, I mean, you just, you can be like, um... You know, you can have Garrick, you can be making a couple beasts, and then, like, make a beast, make a beast, and then the next turn, if you use this, proliferating twice, I'm not saying play it the next turn, but whatever turn you proliferate twice, then use Garrick's ultimate, you know, like, and you also possibly cleared the way, even though your guys have Trample now, too, so it's significant, even if they had something like a 4-4, it's now a 1-1 blocking your Trample guy. You know, it right. works really well with Garrick. Yeah, that's true. Um, it it is a lot of mana though, so you do need to play it in a deck that can play can pay like six mana for something like this, and then be willing to pay four every time you want to do the ability. And how much, uh, you know, what happens if after you've cleared this their board, it's just sitting there. You know, like if you cleared their side of the board and you don't have anything on your end getting any counters, like say you used Garrick's ultimate when he was on exactly four. It's just sitting there. I mean, it's fine. Obviously, it's cool, but it when they play another creature, it doesn't have a counter on it. You're not adding any counters to it anymore either. So once you use it the kind of like the first time, it really could lose a lot of value. You know, once you've once you've activated it once. You know, right. and it depends on how big the creatures are. Sure, if they have a bane slayer in play. You can always like, blink it with Venser. That's true. You can blink it with Venser. Hey. <laughs> um, Real quick, I want to mention Darksteel Sentinel because I think it's exciting, although it is a little expensive. I do like it. It's an uncommon 3-3 artifact creature golem for 6 mana. Uh, Flash, Vigilance, Indestructible. I think that's great. Uh, You know, Flash in a blocker that's not going to die, most likely. Um, Flash in an attacker at the end of your turn that I can also block with. Like, I think it's really good. 6 is a lot, but I think that could be really, really good. Especially if you're playing things like Everflowing Chalice to, to just accelerate you a little bit. Um, and, you know, the keeping mana open in a deck like the kind of decks I like to play that want to... Plume Veil. Yeah, it's, a, it's very Plume Veil-ish. Um, Plume Veil only costs three, but it was a wall. You know, it had d- Defender, so it couldn't attack. And it also didn't have Indestructible. This not only can attack probably should attack every turn yeah, it's indestructible exactly. has vigilance like right. it's just it's pretty what amazing what more incentive do you need to attack like <laughs> <laughs> right i mean in my kind of deck i'm sitting there with mana open for counter spells or if i want to play like jace's ingenuity or i want to activate a man land and if i don't need to do any of that flash him in now i can attack now untap swing with a, a guy you know or whatever you know like if i, I you're right like why why not attack I'll right. attack into a 4-4 with him. It'd be really funny to... Uh, like, what's the point of not attacking? Attack, like, attack in, you'll attack into a 4-4 with him, and then you'll play Contagion Engine. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, but that's pretty exciting. I like that uh, like that card a lot. Um, 
Speaking of counter spells, a new one was spoiled today. Oh, yeah. Stoic Rebuttal. It's a common for blue, blue, one. Just like cancel. And it's counter target spell, but it's got metal craft. It costs one less if you control three or more artifacts. So, I mean, it's a strictly better cancel if you have three artifacts in your deck. And if you were going to play cancel and you have three artifacts in your deck, you might as well just play Stoic Rebuttal. There's, like, really no reason not to. If, right. you, if you were planning on playing cancel. Mindslaver is back. Mindslaver, a classic card from the original Mirrodin block, uh, was played in tooth and nail decks because it costs six to play it, uh, it costs four to activate it, but you control target player during that player's next turn. Um, you, you tap four, tap it, and sacrifice it to get that ability. It's a mythic rare. Artwork is really good, although I really like the old, uh, the old Glenn Angus artwork. Glenn Angus actually passed away a couple years ago. I really would have liked them to have used that old artwork. It was really good. Uh, this is reminiscent of it, but I, I just think that, uh, I like the classic Mindslaver artwork. Anyway, it's, it's Soren's ultimate. Pretty interesting having this and Soren in the same format. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, it gives non-black decks a way to, to use that ultimate if they want. Um, and I've been and, really wanting to play with Soren, but I just don't but, want to play a black deck. <laughs> exactly. So, like, I'm going to put this Mind Slaver in my RDW. No, but, um, <laughs> Next card, Molten Tail Masticore, which is cool because it's a Masticore. I am really pumped up about this card. I think it's it's decent. I don't know. It's a 4-4 four, for four, 4. Let's just go into it. It's a 4-4 yeah. for four, 4. It's a Mythic Rare Masticore artifact creature. The beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice it unless you discard a card. So, so far, exactly like the original Masticore. Right. Tap four, exile a creature card from your graveyard. Molten Tail Masticore deals four damage to target creature or player. So, that is different because Masticore was just tap two to deal one damage to target creature, right? Right, right. Um... And then you can also tap two to regenerate it, same as right. Masticore. So, so it's it's the original Masticore, except for its for one ability. It's you know the the original Masticore was tap two to deal one damage to target creature, and this Masticore is tap four to deal four damage. Uh, but you need to exile a creature card from your graveyard. But this hits creatures or players. I just think that this is really strong. Like it's a lot of mana to be pumping into it, but it gives you reach in a deck like Red Deck Wins. You need to be playing a lot of creatures because you can't use his ability without exiling a creature card from your graveyard. It's uh, vulnerable to graveyard removal, graveyard hate, which, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's, it's something that people should almost be main decking, um, but we'll have to see how much that, uh, that applies once the rest of the set is spoiled. Um, the four-drop slot is crowded. That's the problem. But... The fact that he could give a deck like Red Deck Wins a little more reach, being a permanent source of damage as long as you have creatures in your graveyard, and, and he fuels himself too. That's another significant thing. Um, you don't need to have a creature die to go to your graveyard to use his ability because you can discard a creature from your hand, um, but he essentially nullifies your draw step. That's that's. I mean, he's he's got a heck of a drawback. It does help... Like, his drawback is both helpful and harmful, because now all every card you draw, if it's a land... Like, say you play him when you have no, no cards in hand. Uh, well, you have one card in hand. 
you know, your upkeep comes along, you have to discard it. Now every turn you're, you just have no draw step. You're in top deck mode, but top deck mode doesn't even matter because it's gone. If you're top decking lands, you can't even use his second ability. You know what I mean? So you need to keep, be aware of that kind of thing where he's going to sit there and he's just going to be a 4-4 regenerator that kills your draw step. You know, yeah. and and a four four, while it's a nice solid size, it's not anything uh, that incredible. Sorry. And um, and again, the four slot. You know, wouldn't you rather be playing Koth or Jace or you know any number of four drops? Um, he doesn't have any evasion. I mean, he does kill blockers, so that's fine. But if you don't have anything to remove, he doesn't kill any blockers. He's got sure. he's got regenerating, so I guess he could swing. But I mean. You know, the the other thing, though, you can get rid of him when you want. You don't have to just sit there. He's not like Force of Nature, which you had the old, if you don't pay it, you still keep your Force of Nature, but you lose eight life. Yeah. Like, this, at least you can go, uh, forget it, I'm not discarding anymore, just sacrifice the, the Master Core. I just noticed that, I've never really paid attention, but I mm-hmm. just noticed that there are black cards mm-hmm. aligned with both factions. Which is oh, that is interesting. Painsmith is is Mirren. Memoricide is Mirren. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, the uh, all these cards, and I think we've mentioned it earlier uh, or in an earlier episode. All these cards have like watermarks on them to kind of indicate the faction that they uh, that they're a part of. So there's Phyrexia and there's Mirren. Um, but I almost assumed, you know, I, I took it for granted that the black cards would all be Phyrexian. But Joe's pointing out that there's several. Uh, Mirren watermarks. Exsanguinate is one of the... Which uh, mentions vampires. So maybe vampires are going to be Mirren. It could be. Yeah, I guess we'll have to see what the storyline points out. Um, I love Geth while we're here. Geth, Lord of the Vault. Um, He's a 5-5 Intimidate for 2 black and 4. He's a legendary zombie. Tap a black and X. Doesn't even tap to use the ability. Put target artifact or creature card with converted mana cost X from an opponent's graveyard onto the battlefield under your control tapped. Then that player puts the top X cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. Yeah, that's It's so awesome. Like, that is so, like... It's that, perfect for EDH. Oh my god, it's perfect for, like, your EDH. EDH. Yeah, yeah. It's so great. Like... I'm, like, tempted to try to put him in as the general, like... Yeah. But I, I like Balthor way too much. I have too much shenanigans I can pull with Balthor. Yeah. But he's, and like, such an auto-include. I'm going to try to find a foreign foil of him. Sounds good. Because why not? Um, so we've talked about Motsopal, blah, blah. Mere Battlesphere. I just think this card's hilarious. The artwork is hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, Critters 2. Mm-hmm. Like, where all the critters become a giant ball of critters, and yeah. they're rolling around, eating stuff. They, they roll over the cow, and it's just a bag of bones in there. Anyway, it's a 4-7 for 7 artifact creature, mere construct. When it enters the battlefield, put 4 one one colas mere artifact creature tokens onto the battlefield. Whenever it attacks, you may tap X untapped mere you control, if you do, it gets plus X plus O to end a turn and deals X damage to defending player. It's pretty neat. I yeah. think it's pretty hilarious. It is. I think it's going to be a fun casual card. Like it, it, it's neat. It's an, you, know, you can't it's just, deny the token generation though. Yeah. And if you're playing a deck that's running something like Elspeth and like 
uh, whatever that cart, what's it, the monument. Yeah. You're running, like, Eldrazi Monument and, like, Elspeth. Like, it could get kind of out of hand. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like it could be pretty neat. So, uh, the last card I want to mention is Worm Coil Engine. Now, this is the pre-release card. It's a Mythic Rare for six. It's a 6-6 six, six, Death Touch Lifelink. When Worm Coil Engine is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, put a 3-3 colorless Worm Artifact Creature token with Death Touch and a 3-3 colorless Worm Artifact Creature token with Lifelink onto the battlefield. I think this is really good. This is probably the biggest sleeper, and the only reason I would say that it might not be um, uh, necessarily a speculation call on as far as like its value increasing is that it is the pre-release card. And we saw Ajani Vengeance, which is one of the best Planeswalkers, only went up to like 15 bucks. Um, so I don't know that this has that sort of uh, power to it, but it is really, it is a really neat card. It's a really good card. Like such an awesome card. Right. Six six for six. All right, passes the vanilla test. Death Touch Lifelink, ridiculous, right? Because one time you block with this, or one time you swing, you gain six life. Like red deck loses, like right there. Like it's just, I mean, almost. Anytime you gain six life against a red deck, you almost you just are in a really good position to win, unless they really have. I mean, unless you really let things get out of control. Um, then the fact that if it dies, uh, it's you know put into a graveyard again. Condemn is a bad thing for this this card, um, but if it's put into a graveyard. It's got it's like hey I'm uh, sprouting Thrynax suddenly like I have a three three death touch and a three three life link after I die like it's very sprouting Thrynax ish, um, and you know you you can attack with it you know whatever they do you know then you day of judgment it kind of survives wrath of God or day of judgment um, because it leaves the six power on the board you know you day of judgment you've got three go- two uh, two guys with three power each. Um, it's just, I think it's really good, um, and it can go in any deck, mm-hmm. it's a nice finisher, now it doesn't have flying, but I think, uh, you know, I, I think it could be powerful enough to still see standard play, um, it, it's comparable to Baneslayer in a strange way, like the lifelink, and the fact that it, it's pretty resistant to removal, to most removal, you know, Doomblade kills it, and it gives you three threes. Mm-hmm. I think you look forward to possibly seeing that in some decks coming up. How do you feel about Steel Hellkite? Uh, Steel Hellkite is a 5-5 five, five flyer for six with kind of fire-breathing, except it's, uh, you can pay it with uh, two colorless mana. Metal-breathing. Yeah, it's, it's metal-breathing. It gets plus one, plus oh until end of turn. Um, you can pay X, and it's got like an engineered explosives-esque ability. Um you destroy each non-land permanent with converted mana cost X, whose controller was dealt combat damage by Steel Hellkite this turn. Activate this ability only once each turn. So you're just assuming you're getting in for five. I mean, it's a neat ability, but I just don't see it happening. I mean, six mana for a 5-5 five, five flyer with metal breathing. It just seems like there's way more things. I'd rather have a worm coil engine. Yeah. You know, when I'm building a deck... Now, I, these, all these evaluations are for constructed right. and mostly standard. So right. I mean, I, if I open this in my sealed pool, sure I'll play oh, it. Oh yeah, oh, you know, if, ridiculous. If it sealed. comes to me in draft, I'd probably grab it. I mean, it's a five-five flyer. You know, why not? But I, I mean, play in any deck. Exactly. It doesn't matter what colors you are. So, um, but I just feel like in constructed, you'd go, hmm. Well, this has flying, but this has one more power, has death touch, life link, 
and um, and when it dies, I get two other guys. So it's just got too much competition. Yeah, no, I agree. So I just wanted to get your take on it because I had, we hadn't really talked about it. Also, that's the the, re- the other reason why I wanted to mention Steel Hellkite mm-hmm. is because that's the launch uh, party card, right? So that that's going to be a promo card, alternate art, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, now I don't want to talk about any more cards, but I just wanted to uh, mention that the uh, the cycle of mirrors that tap for mana are coming back. Yeah, with, and the, with also, worse artwork for the most part. Agreed. And um, a new cycle of... Is that it's a straight reprint? Or no, it's that, new. A new cycle of replicas. Right. Um, which, you know, they all the creatures... They're all artifact creatures that have like a, a spell ability if you like sacrifice spell ability associated with the color of mana um when you sacrifice the creature it does something mm-hmm. um the one we have is sacrifice silvok replica to destroy an artifact or enchantment for a green right it's so, a one, one three for three right so i mean but i think that's interesting that those two cycles are coming back because those were cycles i enjoyed um when they were around originally huh Hey, hello, uh, uh, MTG Dance. Um, and I'm a new caller, new listener as of about three hours ago. Um, I'm kind of, I'm a comic book fan, so I gotta start from the beginning and work my way up. So it may be a couple hours before I, uh, catch up with your, with your recent stuff. But I was listening to your episode where you were talking about, like, the, your top five of, like, things you liked, things you did, you didn't like. And one of the things that resonated with me the most was how you guys were talking about the novels and how, they don't do novels based on every set anymore, or they don't do three of them. And really, that was one of the things that kind of kept me with Magic. Um, I, I, I've been playing since Onslaught, which is, you know, fairly recent in, in terms of the history of Magic, I suppose. And I stopped after Time Spiles because Lorwyn looked like this this very silly game to me, and I was like, that's not Magic. That's just a bunch of cute things running around, like, Chef King, what the heck's that? And fairies, that can't be good. Boy, was I wrong. Um, and then, and then Alara came around with like three colors. I'm not a huge fan of three colors. And then Zendikar comes back. And Zendikar was really, I think, if you're gonna introduce someone to magic, first of all, M10 was a pretty good place to start, but Zendikar as a set is a, is like a good example of what magic is. I think, I think, uh, Ravnica was also a good set in that sense. But, one of the things that I hated when I came back to Magic after about two years was that there weren't novels anymore. Yeah, there were the, the Planeswalkers novels, and I'm interested to see where the Planeswalkers go, because you, you can't write uh, a book about Tomagwite, but you can write a book about, you know, Jace or, or Gideon. Uh, and so, I'd say, as, as somebody who you guys seem to have been with Magic more than I have, it's good to hear that there are people out there who dislike the fact that the novels aren't around. Um, Thanks. Bye. Okay, so uh, that was Ryan. Um, the only reason I, kn- I know his name is because he left another message asking us about the uh, the reserved list because he got to the reserved list episode and asked uh, about why that was even brought up. Um, Ryan, if you want to know more information about that, send us an email and I'll uh, I'll send you the info rather than going back into it right now. Um, as for the novels, I totally agree. Um, that's one that we that I don't think we brought up in the episode that he was referring to, um, the, the Planeswalker novels, I don't think we brought those up too much, because they don't, um, they don't refer to a specific block, they're more about a specific character, and I read the Jace novel, and I really liked it, I haven't read any of the other ones, which Chandra is the other one that came out, and I think Tezzeret, 
either just came out or is coming out soon, which I do want to read the Tezzeret novel. Um, but if I go and look at it at the bookstore and it's got typos on the back cover, I don't think I'll read it. Like it's just that's a it's a pretty big turnoff, and we've mentioned that in an, another episode. But um, but yeah, uh, it's kind of like unfortunate that the way they're doing the novels. I just think, I mean, right now I'm primed to read about Scars of Mirrodin. I would love to read the novel. In April or May, that might not be the case, because I'll be thinking about the end of the block and M12 and things like that. Like, uh, the hype is gone. Like, the interest is gone. You know what I mean? You need to take, you need to really capitalize on people's interest, I think. I think that's, that's just a, a coming from somebody who you know, I'm not, like, in marketing or anything. It just seems like an obvious thing that when Jurassic Park is in theaters, go ahead and print your dinosaur sheets because there's going to be kids that want dinosaur sheets. But, you know, five years later when nobody's thinking about Jurassic Park, your dinosaur sheets aren't going to be selling as well. I mean, that was a strange example, but that's what I mean. Like, <laughs> that's an awesome you know, example. <laughs> you're, you've got the hype. People are excited about Scars of Mirrodin and the, the whole block. And when it's over with, it's just, it's, it's old news. You know, who wants to read that? Like, who wants to read, you know, the newspaper doesn't come out with news from uh, last year because it's old news, literally. So I just wish that they would, uh, I wish they'd go back to what they did. I think that would have been better, even if they did release a novel per set. Um, I'm fine with a novel per block, and yes, maybe it gives away too much of the upcoming storyline. I mean, I guess if if the surprise for Alara is that Nico Bolas is the main enemy, I can see why they didn't want to print it. You know, to because everybody would have known Nico Bolas was in the set. But heck, that that spoiled anyway. Remember, it was like Shards of Alara came out, and a couple. I, I want to say within a few weeks, somebody found a list of the names of every card in Conflux, and Nico Bolas Planeswalker was one of them. So, I mean, honestly, obviously that's not a, obviously that's not something you can go on. Like, well, it's probably going to get spoiled. But I just think that uh, I think they'd just sell more. I think they'd sell more books if they released mm-hmm. released the things in time with the hype. Yeah, I mean, hype is a big factor, and as we can see, even now with the price of these cards. Cards, most cards don't sell for more than they do before they're released or at the time of release because so many people think they're on to the next big card and most of those values drop. I, I mean, I'm not going to do the math. Maybe Chris McNutt would like to do it, but go back and look at the pre-sale prices of cards and then look at them once, the, uh, once they've been established and standard. And yes, you're going to see things like Jace and Baneslayer that went up. But for every Jace and Baneslayer, there's a whole bunch of rares that dropped. Um, so I, I feel like the hype is what sold those cards. And the same thing would sell the novel. I'd, if they told me the Scars of Mirrodin novel was in stores right now, I'd go out today and buy it. It's just, you know, I'm excited about it. Right. Um, so uh, we appreciate your call, Ryan. Again, um, send us an email at yomtgtaps at gmail.com, and I will uh, let you in on the whole um, re- reserved list situation, I guess, catastrophe. <laughs> so this weekend, upcoming events. Some small event going on yeah, this, in our backyard. That's right. The Star City Games Open Series is coming to Baltimore this weekend, September 18th and 19th. Uh, Saturday is standard. 
Sunday is Legacy. We'll be there. If you're there, come by and say hello. Uh, we will probably be wearing Yo MTG Taps t-shirts. I will definitely be wearing a Yo MTG Taps t-shirt on both days. All right. So uh, come by and say hello. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to the information. It's at the uh, Baltimore Convention Center. I guess that's everything. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. EO MTG Taps is available every Friday on StarCityGames.com. Visit our website, IWantMyMTG.com, for past episodes, t-shirts, free stickers, and more. You can contact us at YoMTGTaps at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at YoMTGTaps. Taps.